There are two readings this morning, both from the book of Luke. The first is from Luke chapter 1, reading from verses 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And the second is from Luke chapter 4, reading from verses 16 to 21. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we begin this new year with many uncertainties in our minds and many worries and concerns in our hearts. And we do pray very much that you would speak to us now through your word and strengthen us by your word. We pray that you would give us what we need to keep going by your powerful spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as uh, Graham said earlier, this is a time of new beginnings, the beginning of a new year, beginning of a new Christianity Explore course, the beginning of a new term in lockdown, again, the beginning of a new series in Luke's Gospel. And actually, it's that last one which can give us hope for all the other things. I think as we head into this new year, one word that I would use to kind of sum up the, the whole of how 2021 is looking is, is uncertainty. That's true on a kind of big scale. So what will be the economic impact of Brexit? What will happen with the Scottish elections and what's the implication for independence? It's true at a micro scale as well, though. Um, across the last half of 2020, I just lost track of how many hours we spent as a staff team discussing things that didn't end up happening, or at least not the way we planned. So this Sunday was going to be one of them. We were going to be in our normal pattern of four services, 50 people on site each time, children's work going on. And in reality, apart from the tiny team here helping run the service, you're all down the end of a camera. It's the same with, I guess, social activities in our lives. Uh, There's big question marks over schooling, just when will 
our children go back, and so on and so on and so on. I mean, I don't think in, in living memory we've lived through a more changeable and uncertain period of history. And it is really exhausting. It's unsettling. And actually, that's just the COVID factor when it comes to uncertainty. I think the other thing that 2020 brought us, or at least brought to the fore like never before, was the rise and rise of fake news. Social media being manipulated by state actors and clickbait trolls, which means what's sensational rises to the top of public consciousness, not what's true. And we've seen public figures boldly, repeatedly lying with impunity, it seems, undermining what faith there is left in the kind of accuracy of news and public discourse. It's, it's unsettling, it's chaotic, it's, it leads to an uncertainty. Who can we really trust? What can you really believe? And so I think one of the questions, a key question kind of facing us as we start the year is how can you build your life wisely when you're not sure what's going to happen next? In fact, how can you build your life wisely when you're not even sure quite what's happening now? Whether to trust different messages from different quarters, is it really true? I was actually preparing this talk before Christmas, and I'm just back from holiday now. And, and uh, one of the things I thought was, well, is this true of other countries, but maybe not true of here? But then you may have seen that on Christmas, there was the real Queen's speech on one channel, and a deep fake version of the Queen's speech on another channel. Now, we all know that was, that was being done, but the fact is that can now be done. The camera doesn't never lie anymore. So here's the question. Is there a worldview that's actually reliable enough to build a life upon? Something you can be certain about. Certain about reality, certain about the future, and certain enough to make decisions based on it. Decisions about what I do with my time, my energy, my money, my relationships. I think for many, many folk, life is just on hold at the moment. Kind of painfully on hold. Some of that's unavoidable. There are just things we can't do at the moment. Um, But actually, some people are are kind of feeling a a fearful paralysis, unable to make any decisions or, or, or kind of plan for the future, coming from real uncertainty. But actually, in God's kindness, we're starting Luke's Gospel this morning, which was a book written very specifically to help its readers to have certainty. Certainty that you can build life upon. Just have a look down at verse 4 of chapter 1 of Luke. Paul's, uh, sorry, Luke is writing, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. There's the key aim of the whole gospel, certainty. You can see from the outline on the server sheet, uh, which is under the YouTube video if you're watching on there, uh, link to it at least. That's our first point today. The aim of Luke's gospel is certainty. Luke, this guy who was a medically trained doctor and is now a historian, uh, wants us to have certainty. About what? Well, about the good news at the heart of Christianity that it's really true news. Not fake news, but true news. What is the good news? The good news that Jesus Christ, the long-promised saviour of the world, has come. And the good news of what he came to do, he came to open the doors of God's kingdom, the doors of eternal life to anyone 
literally anyone from any background who comes to him. Luke wants us to have certainty. Now, that's not just a kind of vague sense that there's probably a God out there. It's definitely not, uh, as one of my neighbors described, a kind of settled agnosticism that he's fairly sure that you can't really know for sure. It's not the kind of, I'll go along to a carol service, but I'm not going to take it seriously the rest of the time. Who knows, maybe all roads lead up the mountain, maybe some roads lead up the mountain, maybe there's no mountain, but who knows. Now Luke is sure there is a way to know, an actual way to have certainty as we look at the historical record of Jesus Christ. But actually, I wonder if you noticed, the gospel's not just written for inquirers or agnostics or skeptics. Just look in verse 3, who it's actually addressed to at the end of verse 3. Most excellent Theophilus. Probably that's Luke's patron. He's probably the guy paying for the gospel to be published. Uh, His name literally means lover of God. And you can see from verse 4, it's clear that he's been taught things already about Jesus. Certainty concerning the things you have been taught, which is to say this is a book for believers as well as inquirers. And also a book for those who've been taught about Jesus but not yet come to trust him. I wonder if anyone listening in is in that state this morning. You've heard a lot, but you've not put your trust in him personally. On that note, let me just speak to the teenagers and students listening in. If you've come from a Christian home or you've been around kind of church circles for a while and you're kind of facing that decision moment of, do I actually want to follow Jesus for myself? Is the stuff I've been taught really true or is it just what my parents told me? Well, Luke wrote to give us certainty that what we've been taught is true. And as Christians grow in that real confidence, as we realize that this is true truth, it's not wishful thinking, it's not a kind of virtual reality of our own imaginations, it's not some religious deep fake being foisted upon us. No, it's actual factual space-time history, the way things really are. That certainty will give us a solid foundation to build our lives on this year. Even amongst all the other uncertainties, the anxieties of life, finances, the workplace, our social, emotional health, it's actually a wonderful thing to see a rock-solid hope right in the center of life. Even as we think about the 20-30 vision that we were speaking of um, earlier, all the sacrifices and, and time and energy and finance that will involve as we keep trying to grow as a local church and keep trying to serve the wider church. It's actually wonderful to know as we make a sacrifice that, that we're doing this for something certain. We're investing in something that's not just a kind of man-made pipe dream. That's the aim of the book, certainty. That does mean if you are just kind of curious about Christian things, um, I do hope this, this morning gives you, just kind of whets your appetite to read on in Luke or to come along to the, the Christianity Explored course tomorrow. It'd just be a great way to look into the facts. Christianity invites investigation, doesn't hide from it. And for those of us who are Christians and perhaps battling doubts, I think doubts flit across 
the minds of many Christians, but some may be privately racked by them. Sometimes it can happen over a holiday when we're out of routines and maybe get out of the habit of reading the Bible, of praying. You realize you can carry on for a while in the Christian life, running on fumes in terms of intellectual confidence. You can kind of keep doing the outward stuff of the Christian life, the kind of going to church and things. But actually... Those niggling doubts can become a deafening roar if you don't actually face them. And so if you have been drifting a bit over the Christmas holidays, can I encourage you to just be honest with someone about it? Go for a walk, talk to someone, talk to a friend, talk to one of the elders, talk to a small group leader, just talk to someone. And Luke would say, don't hide from those questions. He'd say, come and look at the facts. Come and read my gospel. Let me just walk you through what actually happened You see, the doubts, and this is my experience too, brought out into the open, don't stand up. They flourish in the dark, but in the cold light of day, against the clear witness of Scripture, it becomes clear that they don't actually stand up. And that's partly because of Luke's method, which is our second point, the method of Luke's gospel. The second thing to notice from this short introduction, I've said certainty is the aim, and his method is what will achieve that because Luke basically has done his homework. Let me read the verses again and just listen out for what he says about his method in writing the gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning, sorry, from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty. Did you hear the method? Firstly, careful research. So, so Luke is well aware. He, he candidly admits, look, he's not the first person to write an account of Jesus' life. Um, we know he definitely had access to Mark's early gospel. Um, we, we, there are bits kind of that, that echo that as you go through Luke. He probably had access to other written sources too. But also, did you notice first two, who he's in contact with? Those who, were, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So Luke, the physician, we're going to meet him later in Acts. He becomes this kind of investigative reporter. Um, Later, he travels with Paul, the apostle. He has contact with Peter and the other apostles. Um, He most likely interviews Mary and other key witnesses of Jesus' early years um, and the latter years and deaths. He's a historian compiling eyewitness accounts from those who were there and from those who Jesus commissioned as his first spokesman these ministers of the word, as verse 2 puts it, referring to the apostles. So this is the first thing to notice about his, his method. It is researched from the eyewitnesses. Which is just to say, right from the outset, it's clear this book of the Bible is nothing like what lots of children get taught in school it is. Or in fact, lots of adults get taught from the media, or even in some churches that it is. See, Luke's gospel is categorically not a kind of set of inspirational stories, something just to kind of inspire the best out of humanity. It's not a myth of kind of semi-fictional, idealized fables to, to learn moral lessons from. No, Luke, its own author, says this is a carefully researched account of what actually happened. It's compiled from people who were in the room where it happened. 
actually there. And not one source, but multiple sources within a generation of the events cross-referenced with other people's accounts. And actually, when you read through Luke, that's exactly uh, what we find, this kind of thorough approach. Um, It's more comprehensive than any other gospel. It's the longest book in the New Testament. There's more specific historical and geographical markers than other gospels. Um, uh, If you've got a Bible there at home, uh, just listen to the very next verse. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. It's the start of the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. But did you notice how many names we got, how many places? Um, the, the days of Herod, king of Judea, the, the key person involved was a priest named Zechariah, and you get his uh, family tree, the division of Abijah. Um, even his wife's name, her name was Elizabeth. I wonder if you can hear how different that is from once upon a time there was, or a long time ago in a galaxy far away, or I once knew a guy, or a friend of a friend knew someone who. Actually, when Jesus arrives the first Christmas, there's even more. If you've got a Bible, look on to chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. It's just so many names. So you could ask about Joseph in Nazareth or in Bethlehem, and you know when and where to look. I think sometimes in the tingle and the kind of tinsel of Christmas carols, it's easy to miss just how much hard historical data there actually is contained in the traditional Advent readings. It's going to be one of the advantages of doing Luke in January. Um, It will feel weird, I I think, uh, over the next few weeks, it will feel weird sometimes hearing about shepherds and angels uh, in January, not in December. Uh, but, But actually, it'll be good for us, I think. Because Luke's not writing to give us fuzzy feelings. That's not what his introduction says. He's writing so we can be sure this happens. And actually, it carries on. When John the Baptist uh, is about to announce the start of Jesus' public ministry in chapter 3, just listen to this amount of data, verse 1 of chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Just an extraordinary amount of information he compiles. I mean, it's a real mouthful, as you can tell. It means whether you're up to speed with the Jewish cultural calendar or the Roman and Greek world, you know exactly where and when these events are happening. Space-time history. It's not a myth. With that, it's worth pausing to recognize how vulnerable that would make this book to falsification if Luke was making it up. He himself was most likely a Gentile convert. He's not a native Jewish resident in Jerusalem, most likely. If he was just imagining the setting, he'd be really sticking his neck out every time he mentioned one of these names or places. Decades ago, it was fashionable for a while in liberal academic 
scholarship to kind of write off Luke as a historian, saying he just didn't really care about the facts. The book is full of inaccuracies. But since then, there have been numerous discoveries that actually prove his reliability in all sorts of specific areas. He's increasingly seen as one of our more reliable ancient sources. So in the words of the famous archaeologist William Ramsey, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he's possessed of the true historic sense. He seizes the important and critical events and shows their true nature at greater length while he touches lightly or omits entirely that which was valueless or purposeless. In short, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. And actually, the demonstration of that fact continues into kind of contemporary scholarship. Um, if you want a deep dive into this, uh, it's a big book, but Richard Balcom's excellent book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, he takes all the personal names mentioned in the Gospels and in Acts and compares them statistically to the records we have of first century Jewish names from that region. And the correlation is striking. It's not the kind of thing you could make up if you were writing much later in a different place with no access to the eyewitnesses. It'd be like me guessing the most popular names in Belgium a century ago, before the internet was there to help me. But we shouldn't be surprised that Luke gets the names right, because, as he tells us, he's a careful historian, a careful investigator. As verse 3 puts it, he's followed all these things closely for some time past. The gospel's not coming from his own imagination, but from those who witnessed it actually happening in, their, in front of their eyes. And the importance that some of those small details are accurate is that that should give us confidence at some of the extraordinary stuff. I mean, there are extraordinary things. Angels, miracles, God himself come to earth. But actually, the, the reliability of the other um, details give us real confidence that Counting what Mary saw, Luke isn't just making this up from his imagination. He's writing it down from what she witnessed. So that's the first part of the method, careful research. Uh, but secondly, under method, um, more briefly on this, he also tells us, Luke, in this introduction, how he's going to present his findings. Verse 3, he describes his plan as writing an orderly account for Theophilus. That's just to say that, like with the other Gospels, there's been really real thought and method into how the story is told, how it's arranged, which stories are put next to each other. There is a logic, a, a flow to the book, both on the small level and the big level. It means it's a great thing, this term, to, to read through Luke. If you're out of, um, kind of uh, Bible reading habits, maybe after Christmas, or you're looking for a new thing to start the new year, why not read along with us in Luke? Um, and, and always be asking, why has he put this bit next to this bit? Why is he telling this story after that story? As a deliberate order to it, as he draws out the big points. So, for example, in this first section, which will be most of the term, chapters 1 to, to 4, we're going to see that the saviour of the world has arrived. That's this big first block. Jesus, the long-promised saviour, has arrived. So we'll see the announcement of his birth and its reality. We'll see the announcement of his public ministry and its reality. The Saviour has arrived. Then uh, the second reading we have kicks off a new section. Uh, we won't get to it till, till uh, Easter. 
But this new section is what he's coming to do. He gives this manifesto of, of what he's doing. Uh, and then from chapter 9 onwards, um, Luke very deliberately turns towards Jerusalem. There's a long journey narrative where we learn what it means to follow Jesus into God's eternal kingdom. There's an order to it. And it's not purely chronological. So one of our mistakes sometimes is to think that um, ancient history was written like our history, as if the most important thing is everything that happened in order. Whereas actually, uh, Luke is drawing out the significance by carefully arranging um, the episodes from the eyewitnesses. And that brings us on to our third and final point, the significance of Luke's gospel. You see, it's all very well saying that Luke wants to give us and Theophilus certainty about what he's been taught. And it's all very well saying there's a method to achieve that of careful research and investigation. But does any of that really matter? What's the significance of these events? Because to be honest, most people around Edinburgh don't spend any of their time agonizing about whether this book is true because they don't think it's relevant. Why is our Christianity Explored course not, not kind of jam-packed every time? It is the most amazing news in the world. It is free to anyone who trusts in Jesus. Why is it not packed? Well, perhaps one answer is uh, we're scared to ask people. I think that's sometimes the case. Uh, I know personally it's not always easy to stick the neck out. Actually, the real answer, I think, is that people think they've got something better to do with a midweek evening than find out about this. It is hard to know what you could do with a midweek evening, to be honest, at the moment that would be better, but, but so low is the estimation of the Bible's relevance in our culture. So low is the view of how significant these claims are that many don't even ask the question, is it actually true? To which Luke would want to grab us by the shoulders and say, do you not realize the significance of what has happened in Jesus? Jesus is not just for Christmas, he, he's for life. He's, he gives eternal life. His arrival and life and death and resurrection are epoch-changing. They are life-changing, world-changing. And it's not just for religious types or for those interested in theology. One of the uh, distinct emphases, actually, of Luke's gospel, as opposed to the other gospels, is that anyone, even the, the furthest outsider, can benefit from the salvation that Jesus brings. That is, Jesus is good news for the folk you might overlook. So for Gentiles like Luke or Theophilus, as well as Jews like the apostles, for women like Mary, as well as men, for the poor, as well as for the middle class, for the rich, as well as for the middle class, for children, as well as grown-ups, for the high-status, educated, elite. I mean, you can tell that just from this introduction. In Greek, it's the most beautifully crafted, kind of high literary style. It's Luke saying, look, this isn't just a kind of hokum-pokum tale. This is, this is news for everyone high style. And yet, actually, as you read through the gospel, the uneducated, the unemployed, the outsider is welcome. Lepers, the lame, the deaf, the dumb, homeless people, wealthy people, hated people, tax collectors. It's good news for everyone. 
It has significance for every single human being. Luke would say, whatever your background, whatever your race, whatever your view on gender, whatever your class, whatever your sexuality, whatever your age, whatever your wealth, whatever your status, you need to realize who Jesus is and what he did. In fact, you need to be sure of that because it's a truth you can build life upon. In fact, it's the only truth that will stand. It's the only reality that won't crumble in the end the only warranted certainty. So that's our third area, the significance of Luke's gospel. And actually, there's a clue to the significance point, even there in verse 1. Let me just read verse 1 again. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. That word accomplished is a deliberate choice. It's not just speaking of what's happened among us. It's not just saying some historical stuff has gone on. No, it's a word that speaks of fulfillment. It's about what's been achieved among us, about the plan that's come to fruition, about fulfillment. Um, That's why in our second reading, I wonder if you noticed the the last line of our second reading, when Jesus announces what he's about, kind of gives his manifesto, He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We'll see that again and again and again in Luke and on into Acts. Um, Just the the emphasis on fulfillment, Jesus' birth and life and death, it's all in fulfillment of God's promises and prophecies. Which is to say, the kind of extraordinary events around Jesus' birth and life are not just the coincidence of surprise happenings, but the center of God's eternal plan to save humanity. That's why when we root around for carol service readings that mention Isaiah or or Micah or or others um, from the Old Testament, it's often Luke that draws out the significance, saying how something spoken hundreds of years before Jesus is actually describing his birth in detail. It's why when Jesus stands up in chapter 4, Um, in our second reading, to explain who he is, he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, which describes him. And the significance of that is that um, it's not just kind of eyewitness records that that breed certainty and confidence in the gospel. It's this kind of long-standing network of promises. God had gone on the record to show what his saviour would be like. He'd made promises about how salvation would come to us. It's actually extraordinary that in God's kindness, Jesus didn't just appear out of the blue, but after hundreds of years of prophecy. And at the end of the gospel, um, Jesus will point that out to his disciples. When they're they're struggling in Luke 24 to get their heads around the fact that he died on a cross, and now there are rumors that the tomb is empty and he's he's risen from the dead, Um, uh, he, he says to his disciples, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Listen to this. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? Later, to the rest of the disciples, that's just the two of them, to the rest of them, he says, these are my words I spoke to you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
See, both Jesus and Luke think that this good news of salvation is the accomplishment of a long-promised plan. That alone should give us huge certainty. And certainty, I wonder if you noticed about the most extraordinary bits, his death in our place, his resurrection to guarantee eternal life. As Jesus put it, it was necessary that the Christ should suffer and die and rise again. So, that's Luke's introduction. His aim is to give us certainty. His method is careful research and then arranging it into a structured narrative. And the significance is what has been accomplished. And the wonderful thing is that what has been accomplished in Luke's gospel, in Jesus' life and death, is nothing short of salvation, eternal salvation. We're going to see that salvation is a big category for Luke. A lot goes into that. Jesus is putting right the world and putting right our lives in so many ways. And I have to say, this should be a great tonic for us, given all the uncertainty and difficulty facing us in January 21. I don't know about you, I'm already tired of lockdown, concerned that things are going to get harder before they get better. Um, as, as we came back into the new year, um, Jesse and I have been praying ahead <laughs> Kind of wondering, how, how will we face this month if school doesn't go back for some time? I don't know what your concerns are as we turn a new year. But I know for many of us, there are challenges on our minds and hearts. But one of the wonderful things about being in a relationship with the living God of all eternity is that he can remind us to, to step back and see the wood for the trees, see the big picture. The big picture is that anyone who puts their trust in the Jesus of Luke's gospel, can know for certain that it is well with my soul. On the issues that most matter in life, eternity, a solution to death, forgiveness for the sins I'm ashamed of and the ones I'm not even aware of, rock-solid assurance about what life is for, what life is about, hope and a reason for living that can't be destroyed by a global pandemic. Those are real. They're certain. means, however, dark or lonely or uncertain January's looking, for those of us who know the living God through Jesus, we are not alone, we're not without hope, we are eternally secure. That name, Theophilus, the addressee of the book means lover of God. And Luke is writing to give us certainty that love for the living God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God we know through Jesus, that is not an escape from reality. It's not our own version of a kind of make-believe reality that at least it gets us through. It is certain, an anchor in the storm, a light in the darkness, a hope for the present, and certainty for the future. Even over Christmas, uh, some in our church family have been mourning um, a deep loss and grief. Luke would say, even in suffering, even in loss and difficulty, we can cling tightly to our Saviour and Lord, knowing for certain he will take us home. That's what we've got to look forward to 
in Luke this year. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you know our hearts. We thank you that though we're separated in our different houses um, we, and around the city and, and around the, the country, we, we thank you that you know us and you're with us and can speak to us by your Spirit. And we pray particularly for those who are feeling shaky at the moment, whether from doubts or worries or grief or despair, we pray that you would bring comfort, bring courage, and bring real confidence in the good news of Jesus, our Savior. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.